Welcome to the Lowfeld Haptics Podcast, where we discuss all things related to haptic technology. For our second podcast, we are featuring a Zoom discussion that happened this past summer between our co-founder and CEO, Daniel Büttner, and haptic thought leader, author and professor, David Parisi. David is the author of the book Archaeologies of Touch, Interfacing with Haptics from Electricity to Computing, and also frequently writes about haptics and emerging media in the tech press. Earlier in the year, we published a piece from him on our blog called Expanding the Universe of Haptics. You can find a link to the article in the description of the podcast or linked on our website, which is lowfeld.com. The informal discussion you're about to listen to is an extension of that article David wrote for our blog. Expanding the universe of haptics provided a thorough history of haptics and its great promise, but also tackled the dilemma of how haptics has been overhyped by marketing teams and the press for decades, which has led to the technology not delivering as predicted. Now there seems to be a renewed focus and excitement about haptics with tier one companies adding them to roadmaps and new products. It's an exciting time to work in the field. Enjoy the chat. There's a lot of great stuff in your, in your paper that totally resonated with me. Um, the first one that actually really popped out was this, this whole section of uh, the dream of haptics, <laughs> which uh, I found actually an amazing uh, term. It, it really resonated because, I mean, when, when, you, know, when you go to um, smart haptics or like, you know, conferences around haptics, then you always run into researchers that have this very advanced concept of haptics that, you know, if you do consumer products, you know, these things are decades away. Like this is nowhere near anything that you can ship um, to Best Buy tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been quite fascinated with this question because... Um, I mean, when we started Lofer, we explicitly said we want to look at things that are basically possible in the immediate future. You know, I mean, it's definitely forward thinking technology, but not something that's 15 years out. We want to look at like one to three years or maximum five years out. And I also remembered, for example, you know, researchers just in, in regards to some of the recent developments with like Apple Core Haptics, for example, you know, researchers sometimes like saying, oh, you know, Core Haptics API, it's, it's too primitive. It's not advanced enough. And I was thinking, well, actually, I haven't seen a single haptic design until today that actually exceeds that API where you would say you cannot do this through, you know, Core Haptics, for example. So it, it does sometimes feel like, You know, in the research mode of haptics, people are working with really advanced concepts that go beyond what, you know, current technology can do, but they haven't even really um, maximized the technology that is there today. Um, and I was just curious, like how, how you arrived at this um, dream of haptics. And Yeah, I mean, so for me, it, it comes from... So when I, you know, when I started off my, my research uh, on haptics, it was the early 2000s. So we were just coming out of the VR boom of the late 90s and like the mm. VR sort of crashed. And at the time, I, I really thought that like, I thought that haptics was, I sort of bought the story, right? That like haptics is just about to get here. Um, <laughs> and so, so my project was like, what happens? Like let's, as theorists, let's be ready for when this gets here. And let's have like a theoretical language for understanding the impact of this technology once it gets widely distributed. 
Um, and then what I saw over the next few years was it was it just not getting here. All this stuff that had been designed, all the stuff that had been promised, just sort of languishing um, in the labs. Uh, but then at the same time, like while there was a, a loss of consumer interest and excitement around haptics, there was still a really vibrant and growing research tradition around it. So you have these two sort of diverging pathways, mm. right? A sort of continued investment, um, continued sophistication on the academic side, and then just a total hollowing out uh, of, of, uh, of interest on the consumer side, in large part because the, the promise of haptics was tied to the, the growth and deployment of VR, right? Which again, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of interest um, waned for a bunch of reasons. Um, so what I became really interested in then was tracking the stories that people were telling around haptics. And th that's where I started to notice sort of a recurring set of themes, right? Like a recurring set of tropes in the language that people use to talk about this thing that most people aren't ever gonna feel, right? Yeah, so yeah. most people go their entire lives uh, reading about haptic vests, but never putting one on, right? And and that was true, um, you know, that was true uh, 15 years ago, um, and I think it's still true now, right? Like the the um, the average consumer probably won't put on a haptic vest. No, um, they won't. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's one thing, and it's one of the, one of the um, issues that I raised in uh, in the article. It's one thing for an enthusiast to do it, someone who goes to trade shows and things like that. Uh, but, you know, getting, like you, you mentioned Best Buy, right? Getting a haptic vest into Best Buy, mm. I don't know that that's going to happen in the next five years, right? I don't yeah, know yeah. that it's going to happen in the next 10 years. So uh, really, for me, what it seemed like is that haptics is something that most people encounter in language more than they encounter it in their actual lived experience. So that that dream of haptics became like, uh, emerged as a really central theme in my work, right? What is this technology promising? Um, how does that promise motivating designers? Uh, and then what's the gap between the experience that um, designers, uh, you know, whether it's academics or, you know, product developers, uh, what's the gap between that experience and the experience that, you know, uh, people who aren't directly involved with the technology have uh, with it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what's also interesting, it's kind of tied into this, um, also an observation that I had from Haptic Conference is, um, and also something that we're basically trying to, to uh, accommodate when we work on our technology is that at most haptic conferences, we're looking at haptics as a single modality. You know what I mean? Like there are pure haptics interfaces that buzz or do something when you touch them, but it's not looking at the overarching UX. I think, you know what I mean? Like I think haptics should be much, much more strongly represented in conferences around overarching user experiences, hardware experiences, software experiences, whatever where haptics basically becomes an elementary part of the user experience rather than a thing that stands on its own, uh, you know, and uh, as opposed to we have loads of touch points with technology where there's sound and there's visuals and there could be haptics and it could make it much richer and much more human in a way. And like, for example, you know, with Lofl Studio and, and what we do, haptics is always, it's not forced to be with audio, but it's always somehow married to one other modality because we said, well, I mean, if you have haptics alone, especially for accessibility, for immersive experiences, it's very, very hard to represent a, a really rich data stream to a user just through haptics. It, it can work in some cases, but really in our test, we've seen as soon as you add an audio track or in, as soon as you add a picture to it, it clicks and the whole experience suddenly makes complete sense. Because in the real world, we have very few instances where 
we only feel something and we don't see or hear anything. You know what I mean? Like if we, I don't know, if we just brush with a finger over a table, you can feel the wood surface, but you can actually also hear it, even though it's, it's super subtle, right? And I mean, this is something that if you look back at the, the history of experimental psychology, this is really how the field began, right? It began with this set of experiments that, um, that isolated the senses from one another. Right, so it, it, it carved off sensory experience as if, as if you could really do that, as if that's how your senses worked in the real world. So it was sort of creating this like artificial model of sensory experience through its isolation in the lab. Right? It's, a major, it's a major theme in, um, in sort of critical media histories because if it wasn't for this isolation, then we wouldn't get image reproduction technologies and we wouldn't get sound reproduction technologies. We wouldn't get touch reproduction technologies. Uh, but I think sometimes, I think you're right, I think that model gets sort of, uh, that model gets reified. Um, it, it gets sort of, when you have a whole community of, of researchers that, that need to do this type of work in order to understand how this very specific set of modalities, submodalities works, um, there's a tendency to, to, to forget to bring that back mm -hmm. uh, into like a real world context. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Definitely, definitely. And also now, I mean, I guess with, with the current restrictions with like travel and, and, and all of that, um, it's going to be interesting because I mean, haptics, you know, at conferences, it definitely lift from being able to feel, you know what I mean? Like you'd go, one of the reasons you go to a conference is like, oh, finally, I can, you know, I've, I've read this paper, I've seen this prototype on, 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 on pictures. And now I want to go there and actually try it out. And this was a great value add of some of these conferences, which we don't have right now, which is a bit of a bummer. So I'm, I'm also curious to see how, you know, what the impact is on, on us, on the haptics industry. And now that we can actually uh, really discuss each other's um, solutions or ideas. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that with, you know, there's this big conversation going on right now that I think we're all, if you're in any way, like in a research, any sort of research community, you're sort of hyper aware of this conference, this, this conversation about, you know, what happens with a sort of temporary pause and how long does the pause last of the physical conference. Um, and for, you know, that's sort of prompted a conversation about the importance of touch in our interpersonal communications. But I, I didn't think about it specific to haptics and the importance of like the hands-on demo at the, at the conference space as being something that really sort of coheres, um, you know, coheres your, your experience as a community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, th I remember like at the, I was at the last World Haptics in Tokyo and uh, the Facebook team, Facebook Reality Labs team um, showed a, an Oculus prototype where um, you had basically like a, a wristband, you know, where um, uh, the, it has two functions. It could vibrate and it could actually, um, how do you call it? Like make the, 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 the band more, more dense, like the, it would, could pull, uh, retract, I guess, the, the band. Oh, yeah. So as, and then you had a VR game where you basically played uh, bow and arrow in, in midair without, you know, just with your controller. And you could actually, as you pulled the string, the arm, the, the band would actually get tighter. So it's again, one of those, you know, brain tricks where you should be feeling it on your fingertips, but they put it on your wrist. And it's kind of like, you know, also what we did with the baselet um, as a subwoofer. It doesn't actually always matter precisely where it is on the body, but you have an action as a user, you pull a string and then somewhere on your body, something gets tighter and those two things match, right? So when you loosen, it gets looser and you pull, it gets tight again. And 
on paper, I was like, nah, this, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure about this. And it's actually a similar reaction to back then when we launched Baselets, you know, people read about it. Like, I had no idea it could feel like that. And so anyway, at World Hampties, you know, it was a, a big value add to be able to go around and actually check out some of those VR prototypes. Because then it's, I always say like, like in research, you know, on paper, you can make everything look great. You know, you can make fancy graphs and like talk about what it will do. And I think this actually goes a little bit into your your paragraph on like journalism and marketing because i mean research at, at you know some part some part of research is also marketing you know people talk about what they created and i at these conference i always said well if you know if you can't dumb it to me it's it's really really difficult to judge because on paper you can promise anything and it's it's really about experiencing it especially for me so i'm you know i've been around the haptics industry now for a while i kind of know what the benchmarks are and so if someone says, this is the next big thing, here's a big paper, but unfortunately I can't show it to you. It's like, no, it's not, you know, not that interesting, unfortunately, unless there's an actual prototype. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's a big tradition, like in experimental science, right? So if you go back to, I, like, I hate to keep doing a history thing here, but, but like, so, so much of my research is historical, but like early, like 1700s emergence of experimental science it's all about like the scientific paper that can be replicated and you do the experiment, right? Like if it's a tool, you build the tool and you carry out that, you know, that's, you, you don't, you don't just sort of take their word for it. You replicate the, the experiment. And if it's an apparatus, there's really detailed instructions for like rebuilding the apparatus. Um, and I think there's, you get that in some, um, there's definitely some haptics tradition uh, that's rooted in the ability to like replicate, okay, here's my design you know, you can do this, but I think that's, yeah, definitely like few and far between, right? Like most of the papers are, I built this very specific, very complex machine that can do this one thing mm -hmm. uh, and it does it really well. And like, now I have a PhD because of it. Right. But it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily tied to like, a, um, it's not tied, uh, like, like we were discussing earlier, it's not, it's tied to a longer term deliverable rather than a shorter term one. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe not even delivered at all, right? I mean, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. loads and lots of innovation that also you can see already. I mean, this is a stepping stone maybe, or it's going to trigger some other ideas. But um, I mean, especially things where you require people to wear a huge apparatus or so. I mean, this is this is going to be really, really difficult to get into into any sort of mainstream, I think. I mean, even but again, I keep coming back to the basic because it was such an interesting learning experience putting out this product, even as a tiny, tiny wearable you know with like battery driven no cables attached even that um needed a certain amount of dedication to music or haptics to wear it which you know i i kind of get but you'd be surprised how low that threshold is on a consumer level you know to kind of deal with any any other distraction anything you need to put on your body anything you need to charge i think you know people have now they've they've got their phone it's already running out of battery all the time and you know it's one thing it's like a baby you know you have to kind of like keep running after your phone and make sure it's charged um so adding more complexity to that it's just not not something people want to do right now definitely and it seems like that it seems like that awareness is like missing um in a lot of the projections about you know haptics technology right there there just seems to be a disconnect like between the what use is going to look like on the ground and what the designer imagines use will look like you know uh in, in the lab uh and yeah. i you know, i could talk about specific examples but i think it's 
uh, you know, a lot of the um, a lot of the points that I made in the paper were really drawn from like just themes that I've seen come up over and over and over again in you know, like I said, the fifteen plus years that I've been following this stuff. Just <laughs> the same sort of uh, I think I think missteps is is fair at this point, right? Like I think haptics is in such a weird spot where there's a lot of very exciting work being done. Um, there seem to be just, you know, I haven't counted, but there seem to be a lot of products being brought to market. And that definitely wasn't the case five years ago. It definitely wasn't the case 10 years ago, for sure. Um, so on the one hand, you have this, a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm within the community, a very evolved uh, research community. Uh, and then on the other hand, like you have what I think might be a, a perception by a lot of people that, this is a technology that we've been hearing about that never really went anywhere, you know, based on what people said it was going to do. Yeah. yeah. I think you have those two things sort of happening at the same time, right? A lot of enthusiasm by a very small group of people and it doesn't necessarily translate to, um, you know, to that, that, that broader group that, that, that people needed to. Um, should we maybe, I, I have one point on my list I really wanted to get to because I found that was actually one of my, one of my favorite points in, in your paper is this whole part of journalism and marketing where one of the things you pointed out is we should not only reimagine the haptic engineering, but also haptic marketing, which I couldn't agree with more. Like, in, I mean, we've talked about this before, like the terms HD haptics that's been thrown around without any any sort of subjectivity to it like what does it actually mean what what is actually hd in this in this thing in this design and um i just want to kind of like you know get kind of like your your viewpoint on like what what you would see as like oh you know how you look at this whole haptic marketing um part yeah i think there's a there there's there, there needs to be a little bit of a and this is, I know this is hard to do with marketing in a competitive, you know, in a competitive ecosystem, uh, but there needs to be a little bit more of a shared uh, understanding and a shared mission. Uh, and, it's, and, and what I mean by that is if everyone overpromises with every product release, then what happens in the long run is you wind up in exactly the spot we're in today, where you have 20 plus years of, of overpromising and underdelivering and people lose um, faith in people who have been paying attention. Uh, lose faith in um, in the pro in the, the product categorically, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, they've been promised this before. They've not had it materialized before. Why should this time be any different? And you know, a lot of what I've done in my work is just go back and look at what was written about haptics. They do some of it in the article. What was written about haptics in 1998? Um, is it similar to what's being written about haptics now? And it turns out it, it absolutely 100% almost word for word is. Uh, and so some of that is the responsibility of uh, marketers, haptics marketers. Some of it is a responsibility of uh, journalists. Uh, but I think there's a, a, there's a way to do it better. Um, and, uh, and right now, I mean, just looking at the dual sense, I've been paying a, a little bit of attention to the coverage of the dual sense. And the journalism on it is awful, um, is awful. And it's not, it's not all their fault. Part of it is Sony's fault, right? So um, Sony, uh, when Sony announced the DualSense, they said the DualSense is gonna have haptics um, and previous game controllers have had rumble, mm. right? As if, as if rumble is not a subcategory of haptics. <laughs> so if you're a journalist and like not 
an expert in the history of haptics. Why would you be? Um, and you're going based on what Sony, like Sony's president said about this product. Um, you are going to repeat that. And, and sure. it's, um, it, it's inaccurate, right? And so I kind of understand why Sony's doing it, right? They're trying to differentiate one product from another product, but um, haptics is already like a really, as, as you and anyone who works in this field knows, haptics is a very confusing term for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been used uh, pretty heavily since, uh, since the 90s, uh, but still isn't really uh, incredibly widely understood. There's a lot of confusion about what the term itself means. Uh, and we, I don't think we do ourselves any favors when we muddy the waters even more. And it seems like, you know, with the dual sense, that's exactly what's happening. Um, I think mm-hmm. I read a, um, one of the, um, the hands-on uh, videos of the dual sense. Um, the journalist uh, basically said that like haptics is a new feature in game controllers. And, and again, like that's basically ignoring rumble. Uh, so if you are, you know, if you're in this field, how do you, how do you work against that? And how do you mm-hmm. communicate, you know, the continuity between, um, this older and more familiar, um, feature of, of game hardware and relate it to the, the new feature and explain like, okay, we actually could do some of, some of what the dual sense can do. We could already do it's maybe, you know, I, I don't know, I haven't tried it, but it's maybe a 25% better or 50% better, but it's not categorically new, right? Uh, a lot of what we're going to be doing with this are things that we already tried to do on the previous generation of hardware and gotten them, for, in, in some instances, done a really good job with that, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's a, a, a challenge of communicating uh, and explaining what is a very poorly understood uh, term to people. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of um, when Nintendo came out with a Switch. I remember, I don't know if you remember, like they, they had an advert where there's, I think, the, the, the example with the, the uh, ice in the glass. So you basically mm-hmm. see an, uh, a glass with like ice cubes and you could, you know, shake the, the Switch controller and then feel the ice cubes. And I, it, at the time when that came out, I was actually, wow, this could, act, you know, if this actually lives up to its promise, this could actually be <laughs> a game changer for the industry. Um, but like so many uh, times before, I mean, it, it obviously it did make things better, right? It was not a ERM kind of like, you know, relatively primitive um, vibration. It, it already had more differentiation, but it didn't really take it to a next level where, you know, you have uh, enough sort of like API and hardware capabilities to really, um, you know, have a categorical uh, improvement rather than just a small incremental one. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's the challenge, right? It's, it's hard to get people excited about a small incremental improvement. Um, but then at the same time, if you're co- constantly telling them that this small incremental improvement is not a small incremental improvement, but a totally revolutionary way of engaging with, with a game, um, then eventually, like, they've just heard that story before and they're going to start to tune it out. And I think that's, that's kind of where the industry is right now. Um, it's, 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 hard to get people to buy into a thing that they've seen a lot of failed promises around uh, in the past. And like, how do you, um, you know, how do you, how do you rehabilitate that, that image a little bit? Um, And, you know, it it does seem like when there's a new product launch, there's a lot of articles, you know, by a lot, I mean, you know, 15 or 20 um, popular press articles 
that really try to get at the conceptual thing that it's going to do differently. Um, I mentioned this in, in, in my article around the, the Taptic engine and the Apple Watch. Um, there were a handful of articles that I can point to that talked about how this was going to be like a watershed moment for vibrotactile languages. Mm. Um, and they were really smart pieces of journalism. Um, you know, they were historical, they were, um, they were really intelligent in terms of talking about what this, this technology can do. Um, and, you know, uh, half decade out from that product release, um, how much has it done that? Um, has the Taptic Engine, uh, as one article put it, redefined wearables as a category? Uh, I don't think so. Mm. Uh, so where is it, like, if that's the claim, is that a claim that marketers are making and journalists are making? Or is that a claim that, that users are making? And that's the, the moment that I'm waiting to see what happens, right? Like, mm. But have you actually on the on the Taptic, on the Apple Watch and Taptic Engine example, have you ever kind of like um, found out? I mean, those pieces that were written back then, was this from Apple or was this more from journalists and, and the community? They were from journalists. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, so, so some of it was um, echoing a lot of what what Apple is saying. Right. Um, but some of it was taking uh, what thinking it into the next sort of like what it, what that could mean for the future or something like that or yeah yeah exactly and and really like revisiting so there are a couple of pieces in particular that I'm thinking about where they they really did go back and revisit the history of tactile languages uh, which you know I've done a lot of work on this so that was for me a very very exciting moment to see like a, a journalist and a you know um, popular technology uh, piece writing about that um, and so this this product comes out. The journalist has framed it this way. Apple has kind of done some work framing it this way. The Taptic Engine is going to be revolutionary. And then what are, you know, what are people, what are people doing with it? Well, still using like relatively primitive sets of notifications. Mm. Right? So not all this capability that it that it purportedly has isn't really being taken advantage of. And it's only, you know, um, I mean, I think based on what what we've talked about, uh, it seems like Core Haptics has the potential to change that a bit. Um, but that's far enough out from this initial wave of interest and this initial speculation that that moment seems like um, that moment maybe seems like it's past culturally. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I totally see your point. I think so. My interpretation is that a lot of this actually came from from journalism or the community kind of hyping this maybe a little bit more than than what it was originally intended for. Um, and at least from my interpretation on the industry and what I read is that um, Apple never really intended haptics to be, for example, a, a single modality language or some dictionary or so that you can use to, for example, communicate to a user without, you know, any other sort of modality like, like display or sound. And I mean, if you look at the, even in the API, it's an audio haptic API, right? So they make it very, very clear. This is all about multimodality. You have to play two things at the same time. And in their case, they choose audio, audio and haptics and, um, basically haptics one haptic element can mean very very different things depending on what audio file it is played with um and it's almost like it's almost like a counterpoint composition right where basically haptics is just one note in the whole composition and you need to look at the bigger arrangement and 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 structure um so that in that case i think the 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 hype around this being revolutionary as a language i think was probably coming more from from the community and the and the journalism, but um, I yeah I see your point that um, you know it's the, the, if you say something like Taptic Engine is revolutionary, it's it does start um, a certain expectation because yeah. people 
from a consumer side, they think of a revolution as, oh, you know, I can now feel an alphabet or something like that, which is obviously not the case. Yeah, and I think you're, you're definitely right that the journalists, the journalists in that case were the ones making the language claim, but, but Apple, um, you know, Apple and their promotional materials for Taptic Engine definitely claimed that it was going to be, you know, transformative in the, in the way that Apple does with their marketing, right? Like um, Apple comes along and takes a thing that's already existed and rebrands it in this very clever way and then makes it seem like, you know, Apple's the first person to, uh, first company to implement. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah. I mean, Taptic Engine was really smart um, uh, branding from their perspective because it sounded really distinct from, you know, the, the vibration motor in my Fitbit or in my, you know, Motorola watch or whatever. Um, and then I guess sort of my point here is in, in the actual day-to-day -day use, how much different did it end up being from the vibration motor in a Motorola smartwatch, right? Which was sending like a different message for an incoming call than for a text message, right? Mm -hmm. So already doing a lot of what the Taptic engine did. And so it seemed like the hardware, um, the use cases didn't seem to be taking advantage of the capabilities of the hardware, right? At the time, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. but this is this is actually, I think, this is an, a really interesting evolution, of, and I think very, very few companies are set up to do that. And Apple is Apple is one of those few, where the company is large enough to pursue a long-term five to ten-year strategy on something like that, right? I mean, obviously, yeah. had Apple they didn't just throw a tap the engine in a phone and say, okay, that's it, or it you know it has to be marketable, otherwise we'll take it out again. Which a lot of other mobile phone brands, I think, are. Uh, viewing it this way, it's kind of like, if it's not a marketable feature, if it doesn't push sales for the next phone, we're not going to do it. And Apple had this long-term strategy. So they put out the hardware, they actually evolved. We, we did actually, we have an, a, a full study of all the Taptic Engine generations that were put out from iPhone 7 all the way up to the latest right. um, iPhone SE. And it's interesting. They also changed in, in size quite significantly. Um, and the interesting um, learning there was that it's not it's not necessarily the taptic engine design that's revolutionary it's the fact that apple dedicated two percent of the overall footprint of the phone or volume of the phone not footprint um, to haptics yeah no I, de I definitely i definitely agree and and uh you know that's that's one of the things that uh, struck me about um facebook and oculus right their their strategy for haptics has also been like similarly very long horizon right um and they've they've essentially said as much, right? Like this is all stuff that we're working on, but the deployment is like not, you know, not coming in the, the, the next generation, but like a couple of generations down the line. And it's really interesting to follow companies that have the resources to invest in haptics in that way. Because I mm. think for the most part, um, you know, the challenge for a lot of haptics startups is, uh, you know, that they've got to be able to, um, you know, five years is even a long time absolutely absolutely um, cool awesome um i think i've actually covered all my notes um do you have any other questions or things you wanted to talk about i feel no, like my, my brain is quite <laughs> i mean this was great actually but um i think I've, I've covered all the things that that were kind of floating around in my in my head buzzing around yeah, we've uh, we've definitely we've gone a lot of places in this conversation. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I mean, this was this is wonderful. We should we should do this more often. <laughs> this is a lot yeah, of fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah, it's good. To, uh, I think one of the things uh, we, we've discussed in the past is just like the community aspect of this 
community has been like sort of hard to see, right? Like it might live at these conferences and stuff like that, but um, for the most part, even for, for me, I just haven't had that many opportunities to interact with people. Uh, the yeah. the Haptic Standards group that uh, Rodiana that is on is, that's been really great to get people in a, in a room and, and talking um, yeah. that's, that's oriented around a goal. And mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not necessarily a goal oriented thinker. So I just like, <laughs> I like these meandering conversations that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah actually, Melissa, Melissa and I also had this conversation this morning. We talked about like a developer community, right? So we're thinking about with Studio, we're now seeing like from 13 year olds all the way up to like seasoned iOS developers that people now starting using Studio and they all run into similar questions and there's sort of like a, a passion for haptics or UX. Um, and again, like, you know, there is no place yet where you go to and say, okay, this is, this is a haptics community. Just go tap into them and, you know, talk to them. And again, we're, I think there are loads of, you know, there's audio society, there are like big audio communities, but for haptics, we're still at the start. And on one hand, we're trying to figure out who actually, who actually are these people? Like, are they more experience designers or UX designers? Are they more sound designers? Are they actually developers that, you know, we're turning into, into haptic designers? Um, and so we'll see. I mean, this is this is a big learning phase, basically, to kind of figure out who is actually that community um, of people who not only do research, but actually build and ship products with haptics and build sort of mm. like experiences. And hopefully at some point do things that we as the tool creators go like, wow, I had no idea this is possible. This is kind of the moment I'm looking for. <laughs> I want to be surprised at like what people, uh, you know, do with with the tools that we ship. Yeah, and that's, you know, um, that's one, if I had to like identify one turn I've seen just in the last year, maybe, uh, is that focus, that little bit of an emphasis on community building. So I'm thinking about like Dave Birnbaum's podcast now, yes. yeah, uh, which is covering a lot of ground. Uh, I mean, he's talking to people who, you know, are directly involved in Haptics, but also people, um, he interviewed Mark Smith, who's a professor of research in sensory history, has nothing to do with technology. <laughs> um, so, you know, that as a, as a community building exercise is really interesting. The Haptics Standards Group, uh, Immersion released like a press release about the group mm-hmm. um, two weeks ago. And the amount of people who've come out of the woodwork to, you know, sign up for the group, I, I won't know until we meet uh, again tomorrow, but all of a sudden that group went from, you know, maybe 20 members to to 40 members and it's people who i had no idea were working on this technology or all yes. of a sudden wait you know like that, that's part of it right i mean even just identifying i mean there might be lots of people and we're not connected yet and you don't even know who's working on it and just being able to kind of oversee that landscape is is really valuable yeah for sure awesome no this was fun thank you so much for your time yeah. and um keep up the great work Thanks for listening to the Lowfeld Haptics podcast. We hope you enjoyed the chat between Daniel and David Parisi. You can find out more about Lowfeld Haptics at lowfeld.com. See you again next time.